I'm uh, Peggy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, through the grace of God and fellowship of people like you and sponsorship, I've been sober since February the 4th, 1964. And for that, I'm very grateful. They have a... <clears throat> for those of you who don't even know what this is, <clears throat> it's a 45 RPM record. <laughs> those of us who are old, we... Uh, defined at times our happiness on how many of these we had. And uh, the one that they have chosen to stick on this microphone is Why Don't You Love Me by Rosemary Clooney. Um, I have worried about this all week. I have a relatively short uh, attention span, so I can't anymore. Uh, the road has gotten narrower and, and I uh, I find it difficult to worry about things for months at a time, but I used to be able to, but I can't do it anymore. Um, but I can worry about it for about a week or so at a time. And I have been worried about doing this, not because I haven't done something similar to this before, but because, for one thing, my comrade in arms... <laughs> And there's a pun there. Uh, Dick is not here. He's out in uh, Greeley, Colorado. And uh, I'm unused to doing the, the uh, what, we're, what I'm going to do today by myself because it seems like a sort of a, a sort of a strange oxymoron or something because he's not here. But the other thing is I don't think anybody knows less about love than an alcoholic. I... Even today, I, just, I don't think anybody in the whole world knows much about love anyway uh, because I started doing some research on it at last when I started worrying about it. And uh, I, up to then it was fine. I mean, you know, I didn't think of it one way or the other. But I started doing some research on it when I started worrying about it. And it seems that no one in the world really knows a whole lot about love except that it is and that there's all kinds of it, and that we never think we have the right kind for lots of times, you know, long times, period time. So I thought, well, it would be kind of, you know, as an alcoholic, I know a lot about a lot of things, and I don't know a lot about love, and I don't know a lot about feelings, and I don't know a lot about a lot of things. Even to this day, I don't. I know a lot about hate. I know a lot about anger. Uh, you give me anything negative, I know a lot about it because I had a lot of practice at it. The thing I think that is, and, and I'll get into this in a minute, the thing I think that is so uh, so incredibly buffaloing and confounding about love is that it takes a certain absence of fear to feel it, to, to devote yourself to a relationship in which you feel love. There's all kinds of love, and we'll talk about some of those kinds of love, but when it comes to the valentine kind of love, you know, it, it takes an absence of a certain amount. It takes amount, It takes faith. You, you have to have faith. And I can't just waddle around the world having faith. I mean, it just, it still does not necessarily come natural to me. And I put, I put faith in AA. I put faith in my sponsor. I put faith 
in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I put faith in some of those heroes that I have in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I do have them. Uh, I, I have, you know, I, there's a, the faith seems to come from a, it, I know it comes from a power greater than me, but it seems to have to come to me through you people, through a channel, because I can't suddenly just, God doesn't talk to me, He doesn't whistle at me, He doesn't say, hey, you know, snap awake there, you're not paying attention. He doesn't really speak to me at all, which is a good thing, because um, I'm nuts enough as it is without having voices and stuff, you know. And most of the time, people that they lock up or put them in places constructed for their care, um, here are people talking to them, and sometimes they're convinced that it's God. Even Bill Wilson had one of those experiences on the subway. He thought he heard God telling him to do certain things, and he went and told his group, and they said, no, <laughs> we don't think it was God. And so he bowed to their to the group conscious. But I thought to show you some of the, the, the difficulties there are, I thought we might laugh a little bit at first because I, I am a tremendous curmudgeon and I don't, you know, in our family it's Dick that's romantic. I am not. You know, uh, romantic things for me, and I don't know if that, I don't know what it is. I don't care. Um, I have a football player's mentality and I really, and Dick doesn't, you know, he's a rather gentle man. And I, um, I don't know what that says about any of me. You know, I mean, I didn't even know what sex I was until I was a old, little older because I had no physical evidence, you know, to <laughs> say one way or the other. But I've never been a romantic. I mean, I just, I think it's, oh, you know, I go, oh, shut up. You know, it just, it makes me feel funny, you know, when people are romantic, like, they tell me what beautiful eyes I have or something. I I can't take a compliment like that. I It makes me feel weird, you know, and I want to say, oh, go sit in a hole or something, you know. And people, they don't understand. I mean, that's my response to it. I'm happy they gave me the compliment, but... But I can't handle it, you know. It's it makes me feel gushy, and and I don't like being gushy. I never like being gushy. So I just I'm just sexual. That's easier for me to be sexual. <laughs> I, well, everybody's got their every dog has their day, you know. So I thought we would we would talk a little bit about you know I'm just going to read you some stuff and they, it was stuff that popped out at me I was sitting reading this book this morning thinking I would get some inspiration and this is called the Curmudgeon's Garden of Love and I somebody gave it to me obviously thinking it was a dirty book and it really isn't although there's some pretty funny dirty things in it but I can't read them from the podium but I read one over there beforehand. And it just takes a look at love from, from all different perspectives. And, and I am a curmudgeon as opposed to a romantic. I, I am cynical. I am um, uh, sarcastic. I, find, I, I laugh when people slip on banana peels. I, um, I mean, I just have a very strange outlook on life, I guess it is. And I think a lot of alcoholic women do. Um, I, I find humor in biting ways. You know, I, I just, I just, I think some things are funny that other people don't. And so under the different headings, these are some of the things that just popped out at me. 
This is under the heading of feminism. Some of us are becoming the men we wanted to marry. <laughs> That's by Gloria Steinem, for heaven's sake. No one should have to dance backward all their lives. Jill Ruckelhouse. I thought those were kind of funny because I agree with that. I, you know, I don't want to dance backwards all of my life. The war between men and women. The war between the sexes is the only one in which both sides regularly sleep with the enemy. <laughs> That's by Quentin Crisp, noted hater of women, I presume. This is by Betty Davis, who is one of my favorite curmudgeons. She is the original good time that was had by all. <laughs> she was talking about. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Uh, this is uh, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was one of the famous, wonderful curmudgeons of all. On a visit to the United States, Winston Churchill attended a luncheon where fried chicken was served. When he politely asked the hostess, may I have more breast, she scolded him. Mr. Churchill, in America we say white meat or dark meat. The next day, Churchill sent the woman an orchid with the following note. Madam, I would be much obliged if you would pin this on your white meat. <laughs> Another Winston Churchill. Bessie Braddock. Winston. This Bessie Braddock is an English woman. Bessie Braddock. Winston, you're drunk. Winston Churchill, Bessie, you're ugly, but tomorrow I shall be sober. <laughs> Lady, <laughs> cold. That's curmudgeonly. Lady Astor, if you were my husband, Winston, I'd put poison in your tea. Winston Churchill. <laughs> If I were your husband, Nancy, I'd drink it. <laughs> this is on husbands. The American girl, this is me too. This is me, and it's terrible. I can almost blush to say this. The American girl makes a servant of her husband and then finds him contemptible for being a servant. Oh, hurts. Here's another one. If you cannot have your dear husband for a comfort and a delight, for a breadwinner and a cross patch, for a sofa, chair, or hot water bottle, one can use him as a cross to bear. Oh. If you lived with him, you'd drink too. You ever heard of that? Here's a good one. This is on True Confessions. I belong to Bridegrooms Anonymous. Whenever I feel like getting married, they send over a lady in a house coat and hair curlers to burn my toast for me. <laughs> that was by Dick Martin. The Dick Martin, of course. Love is like war, easy to begin, but very hard to stop. Love ain't nothing but sex misspelled. 
He was a real curmudgeon, Harlan Ellison. Hmm. Love, something you have to make. It's all work, work, work. And part of that's very true, actually. George S. Kaufman told Irving Berlin that the lyrics to his song, Always, were unrealistic. Instead of, I'll be loving you always, Kaufman suggested, I'll be loving you Thursday. (laughs) Oh, dear. When you're away, I'm restless, lonely, wretched, bored, dejected. Only... Here's the rub, my dear. I feel the same when you are here. (laughs) That's on expectations. When you're in love, it's the most glorious two and a half days of your life. (laughs) And Tennessee Williams said, love is just another four-letter word. Of course, he was kind of weird. Any idiot would know women's needs are simple. All we want is your basic millionaire, brain surgeon, criminal lawyer, great dancer who pilots his own Learjet and owns oceanfront property. (laughs) On the other hand, things being what they are today, most of us will settle for a guy who holds down a steady job and isn't carrying an infectious disease. Orson Bean says, what do women want? A guy they can't drive crazy. There aren't many around, but they try. They can't help it. It's their nature. Anyway, I thought it would be kind of fun to get some laughs out of that. Because for us, anyway, for this alcoholic, love has never, never been easy. It's never been an emotion that was easy for me to to feel, to express, to allow. To me, love is commitment. Um, it's, it's intimacy. Um, it's work. It's a sense of humor. Um, it's something that, you know, I was thinking about this, and this is so true. Dick and I started going together uh, shortly after, well, he he hadn't been sober quite a year, and I had been sober longer than that. But it was interesting when we started going together. You know, we, as many of you know, we only went together for two, two and a half months, something like that, before we got married, and everybody thought we were crazy. But here's the interesting thing. Up to that point, I had had several relationships in AA, and none of them had been particularly, uh, well, they weren't fruitful, and they weren't they weren't happy. They were odd sort of things and and I usually broke up with the person or they broke up with me I don't think that really happened in AA but um, it didn't work out because of odd and different things but for example one of them was a postman who kissed too hard I mean it was just the worst thing in the world he kissed so hard that when I'd left my whole face would swell up it was something I think he had an orthodontia problem or something I don't know what it was but what can you say to a guy no I don't want to go out with you because you leave me damaged afterwards you know I mean I I don't know but it was a lucky thing and I think that God was looking out for me because he eventually got drunk and commandeered an ambulance and held police at bay from his house so it was 
lucky I wasn't with him that evening. The thing about the thing that I wanted to bring out is the fact that it was not until I had, by the time that I started going with Dick, I had started, I had worked, I had been working on the first nine steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had been, I began making amends. I began understanding what my character deep, I had just made a beginning, but I had begun. And I, because I didn't start going with him until I had been sober for a little while. But not very, very long. But long enough that AA was beginning to heal. If I have no doubt, I have absolutely, the conviction that I have is this. I would not, Dick and I would not still be married after 25 years if it were not for Alcoholics Anonymous. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind. Because there is no way we would have ever gotten along. There is no way we would have gotten through the things that we have gotten through as two alcoholics. There is no way we would have learned a different way of dealing with people. I didn't know how to love. I had no concept of love. I had no way. I, and it isn't that loving people didn't care for me because they did. My family cared for me. They were loving to me. My friends cared for me. I had an abundance of it coming at me. It was not that. It was the receiver. I couldn't receive it. I didn't know how to receive love. You know, when people die, we always say, God doesn't take that person. He receives them. It's the same thing with love. You know, God receives so much. And he gives so much. But I didn't know how to receive. I would give and give and give thinking all the time of the results that I would get back. I never, I'm never still to this day, I don't think a human being can give unconditional love for long periods of time. Maybe a couple hours. A baby, maybe. You know, just a baby. Maybe a couple hours. And I'm joking. And I'm not really joking about that because we're humans. And I know this lady was talking about her her uh, stepchild in a, a meeting Thursday night. And the thing that struck me was what she's saying is that she can't give unconditional love. I can't either. I, does it, does anyone in this room? Can anyone in this room give unconditional love for any long period of time? I can't. I'm human. I can't. I I'm gonna. Here's. Like I said Monday night, I'm going to try to do this without hurting my head. You know, I have found the enemy, and I think I've got the sucker. And it's in my head. It is in my head. I am a human being, and therefore when I love you, it's going to, sometimes there's going to be conditions on it. I'm not a fool either. Now, when I love a child, there's all kinds of different kinds of love. When I, was, when I love a child... When I loved Jimmy, it I loved him unconditionally for about 15 hours of the day when he was brand new and couldn't talk. He would, When he was sleeping, it was very easy to love him unconditionally. But the bigger they get, the more conditions there are for me to face because... Because he's got a mouth, you know, and he does things like one time um, I was on the phone. And when I'm on the, you know, AA, AA women are always on the phone. I mean, we're always on the phone talking to people and stuff. He, he, uh, you know how they are when they get, when you get on the phone, they go tug on you and stuff. And he'd been tugging on me. And I'd say, just a minute, just a minute. <clears throat> and uh, 
when I, the, I was interrupted finally by the postman ringing the front doorbell. And I went to the door and he said, I think you better grab Jimmy because, and I realized that what he had done was that there was poop smeared on the front door. <laughs> and what he had done was he had changed his own diaper, or he had changed his own pants over in Dick's chair. And he had gotten the Parmesan cheese out of the refrigerator and sprinkled it on himself because he thought it was powder. You know, he was got, he had noticed that we sprinkled stuff like this and he had taken off his own thing and he sprinkled. I was not in unconditionally in love with this fellow at that time. I realized that, you know, it was a somewhat of a neglect on my part because I hadn't uh, listened to his tug. But what I'm saying is that every human being, in my opinion, we have, we are, there's going to be conditions on those sorts of things. But our love of our children is one of the things. And the problem, one of the problems that I have, uh, with loving children is that I tend to love them too much. See, I never seem to be able to do anything, uh, half measures. <laughs> I either, I either go full bore ahead or, or I'm either full speed ahead or collapse. And I think this one of the reasons that love is so tough for us alcoholics is because we get so involved in it. You know, it's it. I don't know if I'm explaining this very well, but on the one hand, we don't want we don't want to feel love because feeling love is taking a risk. It's taking a risk with our feelings. It's taking a risk with our insides. It's taking a risk with our heart. And it really, you know, it 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 hurts. It hurts. And on the other hand, we feel too, we 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 have so much love inside of us that the struggle to keep it from coming out is very difficult. So we're in in our own way we are oxymorons. We are living, breathing oxymorons. We are so different. We are such we have such dichotomous feelings inside of us. And the one thing is, you know, I used to always say, um, I. I can't wait till he grows, you know, I don't like anything between when they're, you know, tiny and not walking and get, until they get into the army. I just want them out of here into the army. And I, I said that, but see, I didn't mean that. What I, what I was doing was masking my feelings with that humor because it hurts so much to feel. And those people who never take a risk, I feel very sorry for them. And we see them in AA all the time, don't we? They never take a risk. They always get out of the relationship within a few months of getting into it. I mean, it's for some of us, it's almost comical because we can judge from the beginning of the... When we stand back and look, we can say X is going with Y. Well, six months isn't up yet, so we can't expect anything until six months. Six months is the break-even point. If, he go, if he's going with her after six months, it's true love. Uh, her... She's three months or two dates or whatever, and she's done. And those people are exactly like I was. They're cowards. We're just cowards. We don't want to hurt. I don't blame us. You know, it's, it's, we're not here to even assign any, any, you know, talk about anything except my experiences, but I was like that. I was scared to death to give of myself. Even, see, one of the things that I know with, with Jimmy was he was my only child. I, I, we had another child that was born dead. And this was a tremendous uh, grief process for me because I really felt like um, 
Susie was talking um, in the meeting on Thursday night about the death of a loved one, and I could relate to her exactly because what I felt was the same that she was describing, and that was that when that person died, that whole next year or two, I was sure everyone else in my life was going to die too. Um, I didn't so much worry about me dying because I, at that point I didn't really care. But I was so worried about Jimmy and I was so worried about Dick and I was worried about my parents because of that. Their neuroticism had set in and, and I, had, I could feel that, that, you know, fear. And as a result of that, what I tried to do was the worst thing I could have done. What I tried to do was I tried to control other people's options. And in controlling their options, that met my need of feeling safe. Now, I don't know if you understand that, but if I controlled his actions, he'd say, can I go down to Jimmy's house? No, you can't go to Jimmy's house. It's two blocks away, but you can go a block. And what I did in doing that, I... I have made amends to him for, but I did this over and over and over again, and that was I wrapped him in cotton wool, and I and I and I tried to control what he did. I tried to keep him safe from the world, and as a result of that, made him hard on him later on, because he had he didn't have the independence that he should have had to learn the things that he should have learned earlier, and that was because I controlled his options to meet my needs. And I, and I, you know, I wish I could say to you uh, that I, you know, I'd love to be able to stand up here and say I'm an expert in all these. I'm not. I'm just an alcoholic human being with a lot of frailties. And that was one area in which I was very frail because I didn't want my child in trouble. I would have done anything in the world. And 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 when he when he did get into trouble and when he did take off and, and drink and do whatever he did with Darren and the rest, of which half of which I didn't know and I'm grateful for, uh, I was terrified because he was no longer in that control. Um, and I had to learn a lot of stuff about that. And then there's the, the, love, the love that we have for our friends. And I have learned the love that I have for my friends means loyalty. It means showing up when I don't want to show up. It means doing for them when I don't want to do for them. It's work, too. It's sponsorship. I learned how to be a friend by being uh, being sponsored. I learned how to be a friend by sponsoring. I learned how to be a friend by doing. I learned how to be a friend by moving people. I mean, anyone who's ever done an AA move knows that you you expose yourself to everybody. You expose yourself to all those people. They see the dust. They, hell, the drawer can fly open. They can see your ratty underwear, you know. It, you know what I'm saying? It, I learned how to be a friend in taking the actions. Love is an action. Love's a decision. Love's a choice. It's all of those things, you know, and I know that now. Uh, and, I, and I may forget it tomorrow, but I know it now, but I didn't know it all those years. And I, and I don't think I'm alone in this. I think a lot, all of us alcoholics have a real tough time learning what love is and what it isn't. I know one thing it isn't. It isn't possession. It's not possession. It's not taking over someone's life. It's not uh, controlling somebody's life. I'd love to, I'd love to have done that. 
But it's dehumanizing when you do that. I'd love to do that, you know, on my way or the highway. You know, and I used to say that. But what I meant was my way so I don't get hurt by your way. And, I mean, you know, I think a lot of that is just growing up and learning from growing up, too. So there's the love of friends, you know. And I think we learn a lot about loving friends in AA. Um, I'm sorry, you know, I, as human as I am, I still, I still count on my friends. And when I learn that I can't count on my friends, um, I, I forgive it. But I don't forget it. <laughs> I wish I could sometimes. But I, and I know that all of us are human, and I know we're going to make mistakes. But a lot of times I don't forget those things. And if it happens two, three, four times, then it becomes a fact. And I, uh, I've had, I've had trouble with that. I have to, I have to try to keep that uh, as even as I can. For example, I could probably list in less than a minute. Two of my pigeons aren't here right now. <laughs> They're in this area. I mean, I've got them that come clear over from Iowa, so, you know, I know it, you know. And, and I'm not not putting them down. Some of them are working, some of them are other things, but some of them should be here, too. Because I would be. And I have to do it that way. That's the way I do it because that's the way it was done. That's the way I, you know, that's the way it was done. And then there's the love of God. And I, for me, that has come last. I mean, that's been the, that's been the hardest darn thing because, uh, I suppose that emotionally it's one of the bigger commitments. Um, I don't have the degree of intimacy with God that I wish I had. Uh, it's better than it has been and it's been it's been through action on on my part i have to take action he doesn't move he's always there i mean he's there he's available for me anytime anytime always no matter what my actions are because he forgives them as soon as i do them it's me it's me you know i'm not i don't forgive and uh, i've had to work very hard on that now what does aa have to do with all of this stuff well it's just simply my life because aa has been my teacher the people in AA have been my examples, both good and bad. The sponsors, the two sponsors that I've had in Alcoholics Anonymous have shown me things about surviving and about loving and about doing that um, I would have never learned anywhere else. It's like some people can learn. Uh, who was it that was talking last night? Susie was talking last night about uh, some members of her family had gone to a certain group after the death in the family and that that was okay for for them, but that she didn't get it, you know, she she just didn't get it, that she got it here. And for me as an alcoholic, the message that I hear, the, the action that I get, the feelings that I have about the deal comes from you guys. I learned, I unlearned a lot of bad things and I learned a lot of good things from you guys by your examples. And I mean, I continuously do that. And the only time that I'm in deep kimchi is when I resist change. When I resist, when, when I get the idea in my head that I am right and that it will never ever change and I don't care what they say, it's going to be this way forever, I'm doomed. 
I'm doomed to mediocrity. I'm doomed to be a pathetic sheep. I'm doomed because it's Blindersville. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I just it's just like psychically I dig in my heels and I say, I ain't changing. I ain't going to change. It's not going to be that way. It's, you know, he always gets his way. When's my turn? He's, he's always right. Ha ha. You know, what a concept. You know, when I get like that, I'm doomed. Because I, my, you can almost hear it. My mind slammed shut. You can hear it. I can feel it. You know, it's just, it's incredible. And I know when, now, because of you and because of AA, I know when it's happened. I can, I can hear it. I can feel it happening. Unbelievable. But how, how did, let me tell you, I heard this story and it just, it just touched my heart because what I was—I don't know how you were—but when I was in high school, it, I was very, very vulnerable, and that was when I really started to drink because being vulnerable is not acceptable to me. And so when I drank, I wasn't vulnerable because I was just drinking, <laughs> you know. And it was a full-time job; I didn't have to be vulnerable when I drank. When I drank, it was like I sprayed Teflon over myself and placed myself in plastic. And being a teenager is difficult enough times as it is, but I heard this story about a kid. Um, he had laughing. He was, the, he was the class clown, and he had laughingly, somebody had said they were having a, a prom, and he wanted to ask this girl to the prom. And... Uh, he was afraid to, but he decided he would anyway. So he laughingly or jokingly said to this girl, would you like to go to the prom with me? And she kind of went, oh, sure. Well, he was stunned because he didn't even think she'd go. You know, he had taken, taken him two or three days to work up the courage to ask it. Then she said she'd go. So he went home and he told his grandparents who were raising him that he was going to the prom. And they were very poor. It was during the Depression. And they went out and they sold something so that they could get him a sport shirt, a sport jacket, and pants. And I remember he said it was a brown jacket and checkered pants, which was the style in those days. You know, this was the style, apparently. And he went out and he got that. And he went to the florist shop and he put, he put in an order for a corsage. And uh, the day before the prom, he went to her and he said, what time shall I pick you up? Because he, no, nobody had cars in those days, what they were going to walk. What time should I come by for you? And she said, oh, I was just kidding. I wouldn't go with you on a bed. <laughs> John's, John's solution to the problem is killer. Um, which is what we would do because we're hurt, so we hurt. We, when we hurt, we hurt. I spent all of the all of my vulnerable years trying to avoid situations like that, or acting as though if a situation like that happened, it didn't happen. And that's called denial. And it's all because I couldn't stand to feel the feeling. I couldn't stand to feel hurt. 
And I, I never, you know, it was funny because, and why should I feel that way? Because in honest truth, in honest truth, I hate to tell you this, but in honest truth, no one really ever dumped me. But I could feel it coming. <laughs> you know, you'd get just so far and you'd start getting paranoid that they were going to dump you. Or that in a job you were going to get fired, so you quit instead of going through the act. Or you dump them ahead of time. And, and I did that. You know, I would do that. All because I didn't want to feel the feeling. Now, I think health, getting healthier, means that I have to find a different way of feeling the feeling. i got to have a way of feeling that isn't going to kill me. Because I always felt like, I, I don't know if I can put this in words, and I don't even know if anyone understands this at all. I could be saying this and not reaching a single person. But I felt like if anyone ever really got to know me, or if they ever really touched my soul, that somehow I would die. Somehow it would hurt so bad that I would like blow up, that I would like explode into a million pieces, that, that it, would, it would destroy life as, as I knew it. And I would do anything to keep from feeling that. And I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not saying that I drank because I had these deep feelings, but I think alcoholics have exaggerated feelings. I think we have exaggerated emotions. I think we don't like black and white TV. We want full color TV because we want to be where the action is, you know. It's like me and football. I love football. I mean, I can't. Basketball's okay, you know, but I mean, they don't beat each other in basketball. And, you know, like bobsledding, that's good because they might turn over and mash their heads or something. You know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of roughness inside of me that makes it so difficult for people to understand that I have these delicate feelings. You know, they always want to go, you gotta be kidding. You know, you beat that kid up on the playground the other day and you're telling me you're sensitive? Give me a break. You know, but that's, isn't that, doesn't that, don't we fit into that category? It's like we act this big tough person on the outside and on the inside we're just, just, it's just sad. It's sad. It really is sad. And I guess that's one reason why we need each other so much. Because my sister is a wonderful person, but she has a certain range of emotion. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about other people. But out there, it seems like they have a certain range of emotion, and it ain't much. <laughs> now, even to this day, I am told that those are normal people, that they have a little little wave like this that's, that's normal, and that's the way people are supposed to go through life. That's boring to me. I mean, that's... I want to be elated or dejected. I mean, if, if I'm going to be sad, I want to be suicidal. I don't want to just be sad. Or if I'm elated, I want to be jubilant. You know, I want, I love winning. I hate losing. You know, I just, it's just that. And you put, you put two people together like that in a relationship and you go, oh, it's up and down. Jesus, it's terrible. It's, it's, 
If you, it's exciting, yes, it is exciting. It's, uh, well, it's certainly not boring, that's for sure. But how, how does AA, how does, how does AA put two people together like that? How does this, this, this emotional coward who is externally looks like, uh, Attila the Hun, which is the way that, literally, the way I portrayed myself. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not this, I have good evidence for this. You know, in my yearbook, you know, uh, people wrote things like, um, uh, things like, I uh, hope you're the first female football player and stuff like, I mean, you know, stuff. But, but obviously, I must have projected this. I was, I love debating. I love to be on the debate team because I liked getting even. I have always liked getting even. Somebody says revenge is better than Christmas. That's, I, you know, for me, that was my modus operandi. You put that into a relationship? <laughs> revenge? And I've tried. Lord knows I've tried to get revenge. But it doesn't work because it damages the relationship. So I'm, I am a, a novice when it comes to not only relationships but love. I don't want to feel it. And yet I, again, I find it very interesting that it was after I had been working on those first nine steps and had started to make my amends that I was able to have a healthy, or a starting of a healthy relationship with Dick. And that was when we met and that's when we got married. And I don't think that that was by accident. What we're going to do for the next hour is um, I'm going to go through my um, sharing on the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and uh, how they have helped me and helped uh, the relationship that I have with it, that Dick and I have, how we have been able to get through this and be, been able to uh, grow from it and how these things are really valid tools when it comes to um, our relationships with anybody. And I find it very interesting that the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the steps that, that we take are, per, are personal recovery steps. And I think that they get us to the place where we're halfway capable of having a relationship with other people. Um, my relationships with people in my life were basically predicated on on the fact that I was afraid of just about everybody and I acted like I wasn't and therefore I took actions um, out of fear and then when I would when I when I would get into a hole it was see the the worst thing about my relationships anyway the worst thing about digging myself out of it is that my pride doesn't want to let me I don't my pride is so tremendous that that it it shuts off my airway I mean it's like I can't even talk when I'm I'm so full of 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 this hideous pride and uh I've been doing this workshop meeting on Monday night on uh, ego factors and in alcoholism, and one of the things in it was I did some reading in uh, AA Comes of Age, and it, it was a, a reading from this uh, particular fellow by the name of Sam Shoemaker in which he says that uh, everyone is a weakling of some sort, and if we don't think we are a weakling of some sort, 
then pride is our weakness, and that's the worst weakness of all. And I could I could relate to that because I, my pride, uh, it, it isn't any different than surrendering to my alcoholism. Surrender to the fact that there were other people in the world and that if I was going to have a relationship with one of them, I was going to have to surrender my pride. And I don't like doing that. I don't like the idea of it. I I don't like being wrong. I don't like giving in. I don't like giving up. I don't like losing a fight. I don't like I don't like any of that stuff. I just don't like it. And I don't think any of us do. But for me, um, in order for me to have a relationship with anyone, it has to be a shared thing. I mean, I I suppose some people, they are called narcissistic, can have relationships with themselves. But um, uh, there are times when I don't like myself very much, and so it wouldn't be very good for me to have one. I mean, I bore myself, to tell you the truth. Because I've known me all my life, and uh, I haven't known you all your lives, and therefore you're far more interesting to me. But these these traditions offer us. As a matter of fact, there's even a couple here in the audience who whose marriage is based on uh, uh, adherence to the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous as embodied in the traditions. They, they even wrote them into their marriage ceremony. And uh, if I can find it, it's stuck in my memorabilia, and any of you would like to see, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind sharing that, because it was a very special ceremony, and it was very beautifully written. And I think it was nifty. I'd never seen it done before. Uh, they had more sense than I did, because I'd... I mean, I got married by a judge. He was an AA, though, at least. But it was a wonderful thing because that indeed is, you know, it's it's being in love and loving someone are two different things. Being in love is 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 a last two and a half days. You know, I mean, it's not realistic to stay. In love. In love to me is kind of like in heat. You know, it's, it, well, in a way. You know, it's like there's these tremendous, wonderful, rushing feelings that we can't possibly sustain. Um, we can't possibly, you know, when, when, a, when your husband has the flu for the first time and is throwing up his socks in the toilet, it is hard to be in love or have those passionate feelings. Now, it isn't that I don't think passion isn't involved in in loving, because it is. In, in loving someone, I think passion can be involved. It isn't, I'm not a passionate person, except on about Alcoholics Anonymous. Dick is a more passionate person. Um, and that that's one of the things that we equal out in. You know, it's like he... Sometimes he is so passionate, and I'm not at all, and so he kind of gives me some of his passion if you get my drift. <laughs> it's okay once we get started. <laughs> I can't I said that. <laughs> hey, women, now be honest. Isn't that the way it is? I mean, it's as long as it's... <laughs> Just prime the pump. You know, I thought. 
He's red, too. Um, so, and, and I think that, that you know, have, having the elements of commitment and passion and intimacy make for a good relationship. But how, what is, it's work. It's work. So what I, we started with was the feeling. We started with the feeling. I think I love you. And it was always, for me it was, I think I love you. Because I couldn't quite give, you know, give it like that. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's easier, and have you ever, when you're talking to your sister, your brother, your mom, or your dad, it's hard to say, I love you. Much easier to say, we love you. Or easier to say, love you. But I love you. Tough to say. Now, I can say that to my parents now. Because I have made amendments to my parents. And I continue to make amendments to my parents. I continue to amend our relationship. Because I love them a lot. And they are not going to be with me very much longer. And I'm glad that our relationship is amended because I'm very proud of them and, I, and I'm reaching a different stage in our relationship with them, my relationship with them, because they're getting older and they're, they need more care. And so I am so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous that I have amended that relationship. Now, the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, which we will go through and zip through, are the basis, I believe, for the mutual respect that is necessary in, in my relationship with Dick or with any anyone. And that mutual relationship, that mutual respect is based on our individual actions. And... I respect Dick. I uh, I don't always like what he says. I don't always like his actions. But I respect and I defend his right to take those actions. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is the basis. I like the man. I like the man. I love him too. But I like him. I respect him. And those sorts of things have come about because I have because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has softened me up to the point that I was vulnerable to that. It's scary, especially when you've been burned. You see, I was never really burned, not like some people have been. But he was, and it was very scary. And I remember the first time that he ever, when he, when he asked me to marry him, he, he sobbed. Because he said, I'm so scared it won't work. Because he'd been burned. And I understood that intellectually, but emotionally I couldn't. And these principles that are embodied in these traditions are the things that have enabled us to get through the, our humanity. Does that make sense to you? It's like when I am being a total flaming jerk... What I can do is take my personality and stuff it. 
into a principle. Do you understand that? It's like, okay, hold up here. What is the principle here? You know, let's get back to principled actions. Let's don't go on emoting. I'm a great emoter. You know, I mean, it's like Dick said to me this morning, you're the sprite in our relationship. Isn't that romantic? <laughs> see, I almost couldn't say it because, see, my throat almost closed up because I, I'm, you know, I don't want to be gushy. But you are the sprite in our relationship. And he said, and I am, the, I am more dull. They said, but I ain't as dull as this guy is. And he was talking about it. <laughs> he had to get in his thing. See. Okay, the tradition one in the relationships with, it, these are 12 suggested guidelines to a healthy relationship, and they are derived directly from the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you, if at least you think we are obscure in this whole world, this was copied from the Nebraska Non, which is the Al-Anon newspaper from Nebraska. And it's all over the world now, so we can take pride uh, in a right sort of way. Okay. The first one says, our common welfare should come first. A healthy relationship depends upon unity. And what that really says to me, what, what I have to keep in mind in that, is that this is a true partnership. This is a partnership. We are partners. We are equals. I can't stand wimpy women. And I can't stand wimpy men. I like both people to stand, to be able to stand on their own two feet. Of course, I like to win a lot, too. And that's not, you cannot have those two things simultaneously sometimes. And so I've had to be bludgeoned into this. I mean, the unity of my marriage is not something that just springs naturally to my mind, you know. I want to win. I want to be right. And have you ever noticed that when you get into your rights, you're usually wrong? When it's my rights, my rights are being offended. Well, what are your rights, dear? My rights are that everything run my way. Oh, well, now that you've explained it, I won't do it. See, and that, but I learned something else in the first tradition, and that is that we can disagree about something and not be disagreeable. I used to think that if people disagreed about things, that it meant automatically they were no good for each other and they should never speak again and avoid each other. I mean, didn't you? I mean, when somebody disagreed with you politically or somebody disagreed, somehow it took away from my validity. See, because I was so insecure that everything about me had to be right. Everything I thought, everything I did had to be, you had to think it was right. Because if you didn't think it was right, it diminished me, not in your eyes, in mine. In my eyes. And a lot of this has got to do with self-esteem. A lot of this has got to do with self-respect. Now, I submit something to you. When I was out there practicing, I didn't do a lot of things for my self-esteem, and I didn't do a lot of things for my self-respect. And it is up to me in Alcoholics Anonymous to regain that self-esteem and regain that self-respect by self-respecting actions and taking actions that are based on esteem. It's up to me. It's not up to him to bolster me up to make me okay. It's up to me to take those actions. And to, you know, my mother used to say, if you can't say anything good about somebody, don't say anything at all. And that's true in this, in a marriage. 
if you can't, don't, you know, Dick and I decided a long time ago, if we were going to disagree about something together, we would disagree in private. We would not argue in public. We would not take each other's inventory in public. We would not constantly badger each other. And have you ever been out with people who bicker? Bicker, 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 bicker. God, it's so, you know, you want to you wanna go, bicker, I'll show you, bicker. <laughs> go home, you know. We don't want to be with you. You're unpleasant, you know. It's, don't, and it's, and it's, it's, you put, you put, you know, that you put yourself down when you do that, when you argue and bicker together like that. So we decided that that was one of the things in unity that we would not do. We would, if we were going to disagree, we could disagree in private and we could work out our things that way rather than bickering in public. And there's another thing too. If you, if I put him down in public, if I disagree, because see, when I, I know how to go for the juggler. I know how to go for the gonads. And when I go for the gonads, and it happens in public, then it's witnessed by people. And when it's witnessed by people, it's it's almost un, it's unforgivable, really, because I'm putting some other human being down in public, and that's not that is that's cowardly, and that's not it's not a good idea, and I and not even fair. And so I think doing that, agreeing to if we have something to say, to say it, um, to talk about it in private is a real good rule of thumb because things can get out of hand. Okay. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he expresses himself in our family or relationship conscience. Decisions relating to the welfare of the relationship and or family should come as a result of each person communicating his or her opinions. To me, this was a great shock because it was, there could be no boss. And I, doing this workshop on the ego, ego factors, it says in there that, that King Baby, this, this king that resides in all of us, or certainly resides in me, feels that he has the inherent right to rule. And I know that. I mean, I feel that inside. I have, you know, I just know truth. Don't you, don't you know how it feels to know truth? It's like, I'm right. Why can't they see it? You know, why can't they crown me queen for a day? You know, why? It's just that feeling of justness, you know, that I'm right. And, I, and if they would just listen, we could run this family just like that, and everything would be fine. And it was hideous. I remember when he was a long-haired hippie dippy or whatever. Scumbag is what he was at the time. <laughs> he... No, he was not a scumbag. He was just a long-haired person. Um... He used to get up in the morning, and he would come out to breakfast just really bad looking. I mean, hungover, eyes as red as a Pepsi can, just, you know, just. And I would start my interrogation. You've been smoking dope. And he would say, no, I haven't. And I'd say, when are you going to get a haircut? When are you going to get a haircut? You look terrible. Your hair is long. It's stringy. It's rah, 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 rah. 
nag, nag, nag. And we're good at that, or at least I am good at it. He just looked at me one day, and I, I'll never forget it. He just looked at me, just plainly, probably stoned, but I don't know for sure. <laughs> but plainly, and he said, Mom, I just hate it when you get like this. He didn't say, I hate you when you get like this. He said, I just hate it when you get like this. And all of a sudden, I saw myself as a petty tyrant. And see, I kind of like being a tyrant. I don't like being a petty tyrant, but I like being a tyrant. Because I, because for so many years, I was so insecure that if everything went the way I planned it, I didn't have to worry. Does that make sense? You know, I just, if they just do it that way, then I didn't have to worry about the outcome because I was in control. And therefore, if he would just get a haircut, he'd make better grades. You know, if he'd just stop smoking dope, he'd be better or whatever. If Dick would just eat canned spinach, we could save money. You know, we had this enormous, enormous fight over canned spinach. And it was the stupidest thing you've ever, but aren't most fights stupid? They're rarely about significant things. They're usually about tiny things. I went out and bought these cans of spinach. I bought, it was three for a dollar. 33 cents a can or something like that. Could have been six for a dollar back in those days. Brought home, served a can of spinach one night. He said, I don't, I, you wasn't eating his spinach. He didn't say anything. I mean, he wasn't complaining or anything. I said, why aren't you eating your spinach? I asked. He said, I don't like spinach. I don't like canned spinach. It's slimy. I said, okay. He said, I don't want it. I don't like it. So, but I had two cans left. <laughs> so I gave a decent time interval and served another can of spinach. And this time he got mad. And he said, I don't like canned spinach. Why are you serving me canned spinach again? And I said, because... I have two cans left. <laughs> he said, this is a personal attack, isn't it? And I said, no, it's not. But see, he took it as a personal attack. You see, when you've got, you know, like this, this, these people who are up and down, he could have had a bad day at the office. Maybe somebody came in and... He had to sign a contractor to put some canned spinach advertisement on the air, and he didn't like it or something. I don't know. But he came home, and I served canned spinach. To him, that meant she doesn't respect my feelings. She doesn't love me anymore. I mean, that's alcoholic. But I understood it. But, I mean, we had to have a fight first before <laughs> before we got to that side. And that's, you know, and that, I think, is just, I just, I think sometimes... I know that we expect our relationships to go so smoothly. We expect it to be the white charger, you know, where people, you know, where he swept me off my feet. We never had any worries. We never had any money troubles. And we never had to eat canned spinach. You know, we never. But that's not true. Of course not. You know, my expectations were way unrealistic to it. And when I can lower my expectations, then... The enjoyment that I have in the present is 
is intensified and heightened. So I had to. I found out I couldn't. I couldn't be a dictator and I couldn't be a boss. It was an equal deal, and I've been very grateful for that. I really have. Three. The only requirement for a good relationship is the willingness to make the relationship work. A total commitment is necessary. Sometimes total commitment is all that we have had. I mean, we have had other things. It's like in my family, uh, my father said this one time, and I, I really agree with it. Uh, at least it's, it's certainly true in my family. He said there have been, he said there is no divorce in our family. We are not Catholic, so it's not that, but there's no divorce in our family. There's lots of homicides, but no divorce. And, uh, and that's, that's been true. And I didn't get married to get divorced. I did not get married to get divorced. I did not enter that relationship with the thought, well, if it doesn't work, I'll just quit. That, that, uh, you know, that was something that our sponsors, when we sat down with them before we got married, before when we were first going together, they said, you must make some kind of commitment to this thing. Well, you know, as it turns out, we didn't realize that our commitment was going to be this long. <laughs> but we knew it was a commitment because uh, without a commitment, I wouldn't be in Alcoholics Anonymous today. I wouldn't be the member that I am. I wouldn't be the sponsor that I am without a commitment. So we had to make a commitment. Um, one of the one of the things in in our relationship has been that there is no drinking, and and maybe that sounds harsh to some of you who are in Al-Anon, but for the two of us, it was an absolute necessity. We cannot have any drinking because our relationship was based on AA. We got sober in AA. We met in AA. We married in AA. We go to meetings together in AA. Um, go to meetings separately in AA, and in in our relationship, there is no drinking. If there if there is drinking, it has been it has it was an agreement from the beginning that whoever drank had to get out. It was just an agreement because we have nothing if we start if one of us starts to drink. And with alcoholics, that's always a possibility. It's always a possibility. And I had to, I had to have that kind of sharp reality in my life. Because if I didn't have that kind of sharp reality in my life, maybe there'd be times when I would have my hand on the doorknob. When I would say, you know, I'll just get out. I'll just get out. If it get, if it gets too tough, I'll just get out. I've got to have that kind of commitment. I have to have that kind of, um, stark realization that it would destroy everything that we have if he or I would start to drink, because then it would be based on a lie. And uh, that may be not for you, but that's for me. And I think in this in this tradition, we also talk about expectations. And what, what do I expect out of my relationship? What do, you know, we have, Dick and I have been through a lot of bad times. And because we're getting older, we're going to go through more of them. We're going to go through times of illness. We're going to go through times of stress. Because we're getting older and our bodies are beginning to wear out. And that isn't funny. I mean, it isn't funny. And some of you have faced that. Some of you are yet to face it. But I, I, and I know that more commitment is going to be necessary for us to not leave each other spiritually when we are ill or older. But I have a great faith that we have been through so much up to this point uh, that it'll be okay. There was a point in our relationship where 
No one, I don't know no one, but certainly I, I felt a great strain on the relationship. I really, it was, it, there was a tremendous threatening feeling in our relationship at one point. If it had gone one direction or the other, one or the other of us could have left. Uh, if you'd have tossed up a nickel at that time, I don't know which way it would have come down. But I do know this, that we stuck together, that we held the integrity of the relationship and we worked it through. You know, we worked with our sponsors and we worked within, within the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and we made it through that time. And that was not easy. And it's like Clancy says, you know, somebody was telling me the other day, that if they lived at the beach, they'd always wanted to live at the beach, but if they actually ever lived at the beach, that they would not even see the ocean after a while. If they lived in the mountains, they would not see the mountains. And that's one, that's the nice thing about living in Nebraska or in Iowa, because there's nothing to see. <laughs> but you can always go visit someplace, you know? I mean, if you want to see pretty scenery, we're always stunned, aren't we? We go and we go, mountains, you know? It's like when my kid, my dad was a kid, he, he came rushing in after school one day and my, my grandmother was fixing a, a roast and, uh, they, you know, he smelled the roast cooking. He called roast meat. And so he came rushing into the house, and there was this whole circle of Eastern Star ladies sitting there. And he goes, oh, goody, meat! Like they hadn't had meat forever, you know. And my grandma's very embarrassed about it. But it's the same thing with us when we go places. We go, ah, waves, you know, ah, mountains. And it's wonderful. But in a marriage, nothing stays wonderful forever. Nothing stays scintillating forever. Sex isn't earth-moving forever. Sometimes it's just <laughs> there. Sometimes it's pretty cute, and sometimes it's fun, and sometimes it's not fun, and sometimes it's work, and sometimes it's wonderful. But it isn't wonderful every time, just like living day at a time with each other isn't wonderful all the time it's just not but it's not horrible all the time either it isn't horrible all the time most of the time it's just livable it's just we're humans and we're living and he is my friend and I can go to my friend and tell my friend what happened today. And I can go to my friend and tell my friend some gossip. And I can go to my friend and I can tell my friend a joke. He's my friend. And, and I'm so fortunate to live with my best friend. And that takes commitment and there's a certain passion in it, and there certainly is um, intimacy. There isn't anything I can't tell Dick. There just isn't anything. Because, fortunately, and because of these traditions, I, I, I have no secrets from him. And so anything is okay. It's all right. Each person should be... Oh, and another thing is that we're, you know... When he first, he said this, and I'll give him credit, the first time, I'll give him credit, um, 
we only have to be married a day at a time. When Jimmy was out there and I was so scared, I could only live with that a day at a time. And I understood that. When I first got sober, I could stay sober a day at a time. Uh, when I went to work, I could work a day at a time. But I couldn't conceive being married just a day at a time. But I know now that it's great to be married a day at a time. Because if you don't like him when you go to bed in the morning, you're married only another day to this guy. He could be a brand new guy that day. He could be like having strange sex that day. It could be all different that day. My attitude could be changed that day. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some days I wouldn't give, if I had to live with him like that day for the rest of my life, forget it. But there's another day. Tomorrow's another day. Tomorrow he could just be wonderful. Tomorrow we could get along great. Tomorrow I could not be a jerk. Because sometimes it's me that's, lots of times it's me that's a jerk. Actually, more times than you would be suspect. I am the jerk. Vote. Okay. Each person should be autonomous except in matters of faith. Did I just read that? There's another thing, too. A lot of the people that I sponsor that goes in under this thing, a lot of people that I sponsor suffer from jealousy.